Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to invite all of you to come and check out our brand new website at www.explorethespaceshow.com. It's just an incredible new home for the show. We are closing in on our 100th episode, and we've created our four pillars of learning. There's just a ton of incredible content. We've been so lucky over the past several years to just have all these wonderful guests who share their time, share their knowledge, share their insights with us, and that's the place to find it. You can find the show as well on all of the major podcast platforms. And if you can take the opportunity to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast and to please subscribe, that really helps the show out. It helps people to find our show and it helps us to grow our audience. If there's content that you're enjoying, if there's things that you want to hear more of, definitely please email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ETS show. I love to interact with my listeners. I love to hear what you're enjoying. I love to hear the stuff you want more of, stuff you want less of. We're, we're still just trying to get better. We're trying to really create something special here. So the more we can hear from you, please feel free to reach out. Nothing makes me happier than interacting with the people who are enjoying this great show. So today's episode is going to be a challenging one, and I'll just set the stage that way. On October 27th of 2018, there was a a mass shooting that happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And this was an event that shocked, I would say, most Americans and people all around the world. As a Jewish person, it certainly shocked me and it shocked my whole community uh, that I grew up in and, and my friends who were Jewish and colleagues and everyone else. But it also caused an enormous outpouring of support, which was wonderful to see, wonderful to experience. But I think it really helped reset how we're looking at mass shootings. And it's been a big part of the This Is Our Lane movement. And it's important for us to think about these episodes and discuss them. So our guest today is Dr. Keith Murray. And Dr. Murray is an emergency physician with the University of Pittsburgh. And he is also the medical director for Pittsburgh SWAT. And on that day of October 27th, he was part of the team that actually raided the synagogue to try to end the shooting and to rescue those who'd been wounded, to tend to those who'd been shot. And he's here today to talk to us about that experience and the training that he's had to, that brought him to that day and, and where, where we sort of stand now with physicians and gun violence. So, Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Mark, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. So you've obviously been through an ordeal that I would argue very, very few physicians ever go through. Hopefully none should ever have to go through. And, and, and unfortunately, more and more people are still having to go through with this mass shooting. But I want to take a little bit of a step back. I remember when I was reading the articles about the shooting and, and you were featured uh, along with the other physicians who were responding and all of the, the brave first responders that went on site. I had never actually heard of SWAT or special response teams having a medical director. What is the role of a medical director for that sort of a first responder unit? No, um, excellent question, Mark. So it's, we've actually been around for a while, but the numbers are still small, but slowly growing. Um, but one of the things that both the National Tactical Officers Association um came up with, as well as the International Association of Chiefs of Police, is they sat down and, you know, they noticed, okay, we're incurring injuries on these um, law enforcement special operations that we're doing. 
what can we do to improve our chance of survivability as well as help you know civilians injured on scene when these sort of things occur and so actually there was a white paper position statement put out by the ntoa the national tactical officer association and they said that it was pretty much incumbent upon swat teams to have special emergency medicine trained individuals embedded in the team you know that could be an emt with specialized training that could be an emt paramedic or that could be a physician embedded in the team that actually does tactical emergency medical uh, i guess activities for lack of a better way to say that. And so what drew you personally to that, right? We've all gone through <laughs> medical school. We've all taken the same oath. We've all committed to doing the same things. And then our careers all go in different directions. For mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, you're, you're doing emergency medicine, and that's obviously a high-intensity environment. What sort of things fell in line? What were the dominoes that, that toppled that drew you into this really unique and I would imagine extraordinarily challenging career? So it's, <clears throat> it's kind of a funny story, Mark. Um, you know, Growing up, I was always uh, in the outdoors. So, I mean, from age three, four, you know, I was probably half feral. So, you know, I did, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did, uh, was it uh, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, you know, in undergrad, my best friend and I we went to undergrad together. We formed a uh, outing club at the University of Nevada, Reno. So, we would actually take people who had no idea about the outdoors and we would just take them out and we'd teach them how to, how to pack their bags. How what a to, brilliant you know, idea. A, I would love something like that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, this was our background. And so my trajectory from from birth till, you know, uh, medical school actually was doing wilderness medicine. Um, and so even during medical school and then residency in emergency medicine, I actually um, started to work on my fellowship in wilderness medicine. And so I'm actually a fellowship trained wilderness medicine physician. Um, and then, you know, my wife, um, who we've been together for 20 years now, she finally started sitting down and thinking to herself. And then she asked me, you know, like, well, what is your, what's a year in your professional life look like ideally if you wanted to do wilderness medicine. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to base camp Everest or I'm going to go to the Antarctic and I'm going to take people as far as like the medical liaison to do this, this and this. And she finally realized that, you know, that I wanted to be gone from the home, you know, three months out of the year. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that that really didn't set too well um, with my wife. And so, you know, we kind of nixed that idea. And um, ironically, she at the time was, well, so going back to our residency, so she's a a surgeon now, a colorectal surgery, but we were both in residencies kind of parallel together. And so she was doing a a trauma surgical rotation there at Cook County there in Chicago. And there's a a physician there by the name of Andrew Dennis. Um, He, you know, he's a trauma surgeon. He also is a full-time SWAT team operator for the Cook County um, Sheriff there. And so after we next the uh, wilderness medicine idea, she actually um, hooked me up with this, uh, this guy. And I started, you know, I was out, I would go be a tackle dummy or just uh, something for the SWAT team. And then later, you know, I, I was actually sent through SWAT basic, uh, SWAT advanced, uh, sent to a couple shooting schools, and eventually just kind of matriculated onto two of the Chicago SWAT teams in the area at the time. And that's kind of like the inception of how I got involved with this stuff. And so what is the portfolio of a medical director for SWAT? When you deploy with the first responders, what is sort of your, what's the to-do list? What is your scope of responsibility? And are there things that you're not supposed to do? Or are there oh, things yeah. that you um, have to really be focusing on? How do, how do they define your your work so that you're doing the things that put you at the top of your skill set? Yeah. So another excellent question. And it really depends on, I guess, the call out that we're involved in. So a lot of my job is um, medical threat assessment, so MTA. So if we know that we're going to have a 
pre-planned mission. So, you know, we're going to do, say, a high-risk search warrant, or we're going to try and take down uh, criminal elements uh, in the community. You know, I'll get called ahead of time, and I'll get briefed on the mission that's going to be ongoing either the next day or in a couple of days. And so one of the things that I'll do sometimes is I'll gather that information. I'll sometimes deploy with our sniper element, and then we'll just go out and we'll just look at the area of operation that we're going to be operating under. And so I can, you know, at that time, I'll start to look around. I'll try to get the uh, latitude and longitude of wherever we're going to be at. And I do that so that I can start to create a map or a topographical map. And because of that, you know, I can start to plan ingress, egress routes for uh, EMS. I can start to think about, okay, if this is, you know, a more rural setting, am I going to be able to land a helicopter here in case we do need to do some sort of casualty evacuation? Um, you know, I also need to know what time of day the mission is going to be ran because I need to know when sunrise is, sunset is. I need to know the phase of the moon. I need to know the weather. And so, and, you know, a hundred other things. And so for a pre-planned mission, that's, I guess, what the medical director is supposed to be doing. So medical threat assessment. Also, before that mission is even launched, you know, I'm usually pretty high um, involved in the preventative or the health maintenance of the team. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm checking on my guys that have knee injuries. You know, how's this guy's shoulder doing? Um, you know, has this guy gone for his So you're working with the team as well just to make sure that they're fit and ready to ready to do their work at the top level too. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the three the three top things probably that I'm always involved in is pre-deployment um, preventative medicine for the team. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be the medical threat assessment creation, and then it's going to be actual on-scene point of injury care. If you had to like say, those, those are the three top things that I would do. And so from that third bucket, I'm curious, what do you carry? I remember there was a wonderful book that I read. I think I read it in college and I've read it a few times since then by Tim O'Brien. And it was called The Things That Carried. And it was about him and his platoon in Vietnam. And it was this incredible mm-hmm. description of the items that were in each person's pack. And it just really gave a really clear picture, not just of the responsibilities that they all had, but just the the sheer stress, the danger, the risk that was involved. What are you carrying when you go out there and you're either deployed with the sniper team or you're actually entering a building or something? What's in your pack? What do you have on you that you can get at quickly? Yeah. Again, great question. So usually I like to think of all the stuff that I carry in layers, you know, so I always have a base layer, a secondary layer and a tertiary layer Um, on my base layer. You know, that's my my uniform, depending on the time of the year. You know, I'm going to have thermal layers versus just light gear. Um, Obviously, the uh, my thigh rig. So I do actually I am armed whenever we go on our missions. So I'll make sure that I have my uh, my sidearm with me Um, for the second layer. That's my my ballistic uh, protection. So I have class four body armor and a ballistic helmet on my armor. That's where actually my medical gear starts to be staged. And, um, you know, we currently run under the T triple C training as far as like, we'll do our medical um, treatments in the field. That's fairly limited depending on where we are in an engagement with the enemy. And so I only have, you know, three bags of equipment, small pouches of equipment on my, on my body armor and it's just lined up with the uh, March algorithm assessments that we use. So I'm able to address massive hemorrhage, airway issues, respiratory issues, um, circulatory issues, and then just head trauma or hypothermia. And it's pretty limited, the medical gear that I actually have on my body armor, because I want to keep it light, mobile, um, and just you know very focused where I could deal with probably one, maybe two major traumas for that instance. Uh, so that's my secondary layer. Tertiary layer kind of um give and take depending on the mission that we're running so for instance the, you know the um the tree of life uh, synagogue active shooter that we just went through i knew that there was obviously going to be multiple casualties in, inside we weren't sure what we we're going to encounter so i actually had both my typical medical bag that i carried then also i have an mci or a mass casualty incident bag um that's 
you know, big bright orange and it just has essentially, you know, 40 tourniquets, 50 hemostatic cause agents, you know, a bunch of elastic bandages and those things that I can just deploy and put it into a major area or a casual collection point that we can try to treat, you know, massive amounts of injuries. So it sounds like based on what's in that MCI bag, if I heard that right, this is really about just basically get control of bleeding and get them evacuated. That's the goal. It's not to try to resuscitate in the field. It's basically just get them to a spot, somebody who's wounded where you can move them a out of danger and B where they can get to a trauma resus room or something like that. Correct. I mean, there's really only five, six things that we would actually do in the field to a traumatized individual, you know, so what's going to kill them the fastest massive hemorrhage. So that is always the first focus. You know, that is our tourniquets. That's our hemostatic agents. That's bandages. Um, Airway is going to kill you, you know, second fastest. So we are equipped to perform, you know, surgical airways in the field. Um, uh, We can do needle decompressions, chest seals, um, you know, those kind of things. And then finally, you know, uh, hypothermia or head injuries. And so, you know, we only deal with those five things in the field because truthfully, the more things we do to a severely injured person in the field, the worse their mortality the is. The worse it's going to be, we, right, right. Exactly. So, and, and how much do you drill? You know, we talked a lot on, on the show this time last year, you know, Sonoma County had gone through the Tubbs fire and we talked a lot about the impact of, of drilling and practice to get through something like that. Uh, I had Dr. Michael Cheatham, who's a trauma director after the Orlando uh, nightclub shooting, the pulse shooting. And mm-hmm. he talked about how they had just done a drill and the fact that they had just done that had a huge impact on their ability to manage all of the patients that came in. How much do you train for something like the tree of life shooting had you trained for something like that before were you did you feel like your skill set was tuned up so that when that call came you guys were you had a sense of what you were getting into and what you had to do again i can't drill home how important all of this training is like pre-training and then also making the training that you do before this happens as realistic as possible i think it's so key i mean personally you know i did or emergency medicine resident training and they're in chicago and then our trauma training was either at mount sinai or cook county so i mean i saw the worst of the worst at least there you know and then for medical training for the swat team as well as the tactical ems cadre that we have everything we try to make it as realistic as possible um and so twice a year we actually put the whole swat team through eight hours of medical training so they have to do Every single thing that I'm able to do in the field, they have to be able to do it as well. And so, again, you know, if we're simulating a mass casualty incident from an active shooter, I'll have 10 mannequins laying around as well as some active live actors, you know, all moulaged up. So there's this person has obvious, you know, non-survival injuries. There's brain matter everywhere. This person over here, you know, will try to figure out how to make it look like they have an arterial bleeding that the SWAT team guys have to identify, deal with, and then kind of move that person. And so, you know, every single training that we have, there's always going to be medical evolutions. And then every six months we have just the entire train is medical evolutions. And so honestly, by the time we got to the uh, tree of life synagogue shooting, um, it was, I mean, it's probably bad to say, but it's probably not anything worse than we've ever seen in the training that I've put our guys through, which is good. So let's, let's start with that day. Let's start with October 27th of 2018. How did your day start with, with respect to a normal day or what were we, what were you doing when all of a sudden you get a phone call? Hey, we need you to go to, I I would guess you probably were sent to a staging area or something. How did that sort of first part of the morning evolve for you? I mean, typical Saturday morning, you know, um, I'm actually a really good friend with one of the trauma surgeons that, um, 
received one of the patients from the Tree of Life, but uh, his little child was having a uh, Halloween uh, birthday party um, up at the local YMCA where around he lives. And so I was actually trying to stuff my three-year-old into a costume (laughs) in order to get him ready to go to that party. And then both of us actually at the same time received a, uh, you know, a SWAT team page out that said, and I think it was, um, you know, gunshots, um, serious hemorrhage, active shooter in building. And usually when, you know, when we get a, a text page on our phone, I largely ignore them because it's just, you know, um, sad person barricaded. They don't want to come out. And so 80% of the call outs that I receive, I usually don't go to. Um, but immediately, you know, you saw this and I think the, the page came out at 9.58, I want to say. And so immediately I knew this was the real deal. Um, I was responding. And so my wife was getting our other uh, daughter ready for something else. And I just yelled at her, hey, sorry, babe, got to go. Make sure I kissed everyone goodbye. And then three minutes later, you know, I'm changed and uh, out the door and driving as fast as possible to the uh, the Tree of Life synagogue. That's an incredibly fast transition for you. And so you had to – what's going through your head when you've seen that text page? It says, you know, active shooter involved. Then you have to transition from getting ready for a Halloween party to saying goodbye. Uh, I, yeah. I can, I can – I'm having a difficult time, I think, wrapping my mind around what that would feel like. That 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 is always like the hard transition, right? Because you're in you're in a nice, mellow, calm family kind of um, physiology, and then you get that text, and so then you're the next, you know, you're uh, you're running out the door, driving 100 miles an hour towards um, towards danger. But really, honestly, you're taking that time. You know, I have my radio on, so I'm trying to gather intel from the field. I'm uh, radioing ahead to, you know, let them know that MD-10, like all sign, I'm responding. But at the same time, you're trying to dial it back, you know, dial all of your emotions back because, you know, your adrenaline is just shot through the roof there real quick. And then, yeah, you just um, fall back on your training and you start to make your plans. You know, you start to think about geographically, where's the location? Well, you know, what's the juxtaposition of all the level one trauma centers? How many tactical EMS uh, guys am I going to have on scene? You know, so you really just fall back onto your training after you breathe up a couple times and then just get ready to do the job you're trying to do. You did say something and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to skip past it. You, you were talking about when you were getting there, you were driving a hundred miles an hour towards the danger. And you know, that that's the very definition of choosing one or out of the two roads of the fight or flight response. And what helped you get to a place where you're going to drive a hundred miles towards danger? Is it, is it something from your medical training? Is it the, the oath that we took when we graduated? What do you think is it for you that when you get a call like that, that it's, I'm going to floor it as fast as I can towards where the danger is not, I'm going to stay back or I'm going to move in the other direction. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, such a, such an in-depth uh, question, probably, and with multiple answers. You know, I mean, number one, you know, obviously, we all um, we all became physicians because our goal was to help other individuals. You know, should they incur injury, should they just be suffering an ailment? You know, we are there to help and heal. You know, one of the things that I found early on was I was really interested in helping out the team just in general. And uh, I mean, knowing going into these situations that these are real life and death situations, my my whole goal was to just give my SWAT team members that extra little chance just to come home safely to their families. And so that's mm-hmm. what really what drives me, you know, um, yeah. it's being there, giving them that 1%, 2% extra chance of actually going home to their loved ones should they incur injury. And so that's really what drives me um, personally. You know, the one aspect that probably no one ever wants to admit is, yeah, there is a little bit of a, an adrenaline rush to these things. A little so, bit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, and so, yeah, I mean, you get kind of a uh, used to it and kind of uh, a, yeah find yourself occasionally kind of uh, wanting something to happen. 
Now, when you got there, from the time that you got to the to the synagogue itself to when you entered the building, how much time did you have to sort of collect yourself and get organized before you you and the team actually entered the building? No, that's that's one of those wild experiences, and I don't know if I can even adequately explain it. But time seems to do really strange things when you're like in these stressful environments. Yeah, you know. So I spent. I mean, you know, I think I Google mapped it, and it was supposed to take me 16 minutes to get to the Tree of Life, but I think I got there in like say 11 or 12. Wow. Um, but you know, again, the whole time you're spending the whole time gathering intel, trying to dial back your physiology so that you can actually do the the fine motor skill things that you're supposed to be able to do once you arrive on scene. Um, and so I remember, you know. Uh, I had my armor on already. I was driving with my armor on, so I just had to make sure that my radio was working, put it in, got my helmet on, made sure I grabbed both the uh, medical bags that I thought I was going to have to need. And then really, I was just trying to look around and try to find who I could link up with in order to get to the synagogue as quickly as possible. So, you know, by the time I got there, there was already uh, eight or so um, ambulance ambulances on scene. There's probably 20, you know, local law enforcement patrol units on scene. And so a lot of the streets were clogged. And so I actually ended up just four-wheeling <laughs> And I had to apologize later to the people, but I, you know, just traveled across people's lawns and just ended up parking my truck in someone's front lawn, um, you know, hopped out, got my stuff on and actually finally located one of my SWAT operators that I knew. And he and I just linked up, did a quick um, buddy check of each other's gears and then just asked each of us, you know, are you good to go? We said, yeah. And then we just basically sprinted um, to one of the corners of the synagogue because we thought that we actually were just going to go in as a two man element Um but, you know, thankfully, when we arrived to the corner of the building, there was, I want to say, seven or eight other guys waiting and being held there in order to make entry into the building. So we linked up a little bit of a larger uh, team and then finally uh, made entry into the synagogue. So from that moment of thinking it might just be two of us versus now there's eight or it sounds like eight or ten, does that what does that do to your mindset as you're getting ready to go in? Is it does it matter? Is it better? <laughs> is it reassuring? Well, that was a big mental sigh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, this is about to get real, real fast. And uh, am I trained to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I knew going into the fight that we're going to be uh, play facing something with a long gun. You know, he's I think reeling an AR-15, and we we're getting reports of that at the time. And I only had a, a sidearm, so you know, you never really want to take a handgun into a fight with someone with a long gun. But if those are the only options, you go and do your job. But yeah, it was definitely mentally uh, reassuring when I saw my half of my team <laughs> lined yeah. up on the wall. <laughs> so as you get ready to to enter for you as a doc, and I'm curious about this is your mindset as you're getting ready to go in, I'm going in ready to fight or I'm going in to start taking care of patients or is it both? One of the huge things and one of the huge paradigms that um, we operate under is, you know, we do the TCCC, so the uh, trauma combat casualty care. As, I mean, it's pretty much the standard of what all military forces and probably law enforcement TEMS teams operate under. So our primary mission when I enter, the only the only mission is to stop the active shooter, to stop him from killing additional individuals. And so when I do this training, you know, to civilians and such, people actually get mad at me when I say, you know, if you're injured, I'm going to take one giant step over you and I'm going to hmm. continue to go to wherever the shooting is because we need to stop the shooting. Okay. You know, after that's done, yeah, I'm, I'm going to circle back and I'm going to, you know, provide you with medical care. But in the interim, you need to be able to take care of yourself because yeah once we punch in it's there's the one mission and it's a tactical mission the only time we ever do medicine is that it's it's a tactical decision to perform medicine if that answers uh, your question it does so you're you're going in with the group and you're looking for a transition point where you have the opportunity you can do your assessments and look but you're going to be looking to to stop the shooting first and then transition into 
ATLS survey, you know, basic care, stop the bleeding, that sort of thing. Is there, you're looking for that transition point? Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll push into a certain area of a structure and if we're held up there and is deemed semi-safe and then I'll, you know, I'll look at one of my operators and I'll say, Hey, I'm going, I'm going contact just as far as like our terminology and they'll say, okay, I have cover. And so that we both just had a closed loop conversation. They know that I'm going to go hands-on with the patient and then they know that they're actually going to provide lethal cover me lethal lethal cover over me and, and so that I can do those medical evaluations. You know, one of the things that happens is once I stop paying attention to the environment, I put all my focus on the patient, I lose all tactical awareness whatsoever. So someone could easily just walk up and, you know, shoot me in the back um, because I, I just don't have that focus. All my focus is on the patient. And so that's usually the only time that we will provide medical care is if I'm 100% protected and someone is on the overwatch over me. So then you, you, you're with your team and you enter the building. And I know that having read the accounts of it, that there were multiple floors and a very confusing scene. And what were you seeing? I, I, I can only begin to imagine what that sensory overload must have felt like. What were you seeing and hearing and, and smelling as you as you entered the building? And did that change your mindset at all? Uh, so this is one of those funny uh, gray areas that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about. The, uh, the FBI actually um, is telling us that we're not allowed to tell people about the exact things that went on in the building. And then the let's not even let's, I appreciate you telling me that. And I would never want to put you <laughs> in any sort of position, but I guess if you can just describe without, without the specifics, just the, yeah. how long did it take to get to that transition point? How long did it take you to get to a place where you were able to say, I can start taking care of people. And I know that now some of those people that two of the members of your SWAT team were shot, mm-hmm. how long did it take before you could get to that point? Yeah. So there's actually, the, you know, there's these ebbs and flows, even even in such a dynamic situation. So what ended up happening is um, because of the way the streets that, you know, um, to the synagogue were derived, um, half of the SWAT team ended up on one side of the structure and half of the SWAT team ended up on the other side of the structure and we couldn't actually get to each other. So what ended up happening is we had two completely separate um, entry teams. And so I I'm, was on one entry team and then pretty much most of my Thames medics were on the other entry team. And so what we did is, you know, we punched into the structure, obviously they were encountering whatever they were encountering. And then on my side, you know, we would do um, clears of rooms. And if there was a lull in the action or we weren't cleared to move forward, that's when I would actually do some sort of medical assessment. And so when I first punched in, yeah, we actually um, noticed two people hiding so I did a quick remote assessment survey of them because I didn't want to break away from the team just yet. But then once we deemed that there was like, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds um, of stall time, then, yeah, then we could actually do an assessment of them. Notice that neither of them had injuries. And so we just kind of escorted them slowly out of the building because they were pretty elderly <laughs> and um, just try to gather intel from them on the way out. You know, did you see the shooter? What do they look like? How many were there? Um, anyone else in this room hiding, hurt, injured? Um, and so, you know, I went from tactical awareness to medical awareness back to tactical awareness in two, three minutes. And then that's when we pushed um, further into the structure. And did you get to a point where was it that sort of shifting back and forth the whole time you mentioned that tactical awareness to medical awareness back to tactical awareness. were you doing that constantly throughout the whole time you were in the building oh absolutely so, yeah so when we're moving into an unknown area you know there's again there's nothing there's nothing medical going on it's um choosing your angles making sure that you got your you know your your field of fire covered make sure that if we're going to enter into a room that you know i'm following my number one my number two whatever they're doing i'm you know i'm going to go opposite those guys um and then after we have an area secured that's when 
we can kind of, I start to, you know, put my head back on a swivel and look to see if there is anything medically going on that I need to assess. And so, you know, um, right when both my entry team as well, the other entry team started to gather together, we actually, you know, made a rendezvous together. That's when there was, again, a little bit of a lull in the action. We could actually evaluate probably six or seven people that we uh, we encountered. We actually um, noticed that two of them were alive. And so we actually were able to treat medically two people still while the hunt for the active shooter was going on. And so we were able to evaluate them, treat them, exfiltrate them out and uh, kind of hand them off to outside people so that we can continue to do whatever we were doing inside the structure. And you're, you've been an emergency physician for some time. And I would imagine being in a major metropolitan area at a level one trauma center, you see all sorts of trauma due to gunfire. And I wonder if the, what you were seeing from the bullets from an AR-15, you know, this is, this is an assault rifle. Uh, were you encountering things that were, uh, that were not outside the scope of what you're, what you can do, but where you're just like, these people are just shattered. This is unbelievable. Yeah, no, that's, that is exactly a perfect way to, uh, to put it. So, you know, you look at wounding patterns from recent civilian public mass shootings, these CPMS events, and there's been some decent write-ups from um, trauma literature. And yes, I mean, the AR-15, you know, semi-automatic rifle, just, it's a devastating round. And, you know, a lot of these injuries that they occur are just non-survivable. You know, the, um, the case fatality rates from CPMS events are just ridiculously high when compared to, say, military um, case fatality rates. So, yeah, I was definitely... Um, encountering non-survivable injuries from such a lethal round, similar to what we are seeing in other CPMS uh, events here in the United States. That must feel, is there, is there a sense of frustration in that moment or does that come a little bit later when you're, you're there, you've done all this work, now you're in the building and there, as you say, these are non-survivable injuries. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things where again, you just kind of um, compartmentalize that you put it away and then you uh, dig it out three, four days later when you actually have time to sit around and think about it. Now, how long were you inside the building and what did, did your scope of responsibility evolve as, as things happened? I think what the, it was a little after 11 o'clock that the, the gunman was finally arrested after he surrendered. Were you in the building that whole time? Yeah. So after, after you know, so we had the two separate entry teams. We kind of, um, you know, were clearing our, our specific uh, areas of the building. And then we finally uh, came together, which was kind of nice. So now we're working as a one man element. Um, I think, uh, you know, out of the 16 Thames cadre that we have here in Pittsburgh, I think 12 of them made it to that call out. So it was myself and a full complement of 12 um, tactical EMS guys. And so we um, pushed further into a structure and then we kind of got to a point where we had to divide the team up again into like two, three different uh, directions. And so that's where we actually made our um, forward casualty collection point. So, you know, we constantly were moving it to make it so that we were as close to the point of injury potential as possible so that we could do something as soon as possible and then exfiltrate them um, when we were able to. And so it was, you know, it was kind of weird. So there was a lull in the action again. We all got together. We all kind of just debriefed everyone on what had gone on, what we saw, what we were doing. And then so we made the the, uh, casualty collection point. And then I think it was four minutes later is when we actually got into the gunfight with with the shooter, um, for lack of a better terminology for him. And then that's when our first officer was shot, what, six, seven uh, times or so. It was interesting five minutes of a time there uh and okay so your question um you know was i there the whole time so i just finished doing the after action report write up so you know we're standing there we make the uh, the casual collection point over ccp a couple minutes go by and then we get this uh radio radio call you know uh shots fired 
officer down, um, officer shot. And at that time, we were kind of confused as far as like officer down and officer shot. Was that the, was that just one officer? Was that two? What's going on? But it turns out that two two of my actual uh, SWAT operators were shot. So uh, the first guy, um, he was shot. He fell into the room where the uh, where the shooter was. And so actually, we had to do a, a pretty rapid um, officer down rescue. And but it was crazy going back through the timeline because from the radio call that we received that uh, officer shot officer down, it was only 40, 45 seconds between the time that he was shot and down before he was delivered to us, the uh, the entire Thames cadre before we started doing like interventions on him. So it was actually pretty impressive. And actually, by the time it got to us, um, all of his armor and his helmet had been removed by the other operators that were transporting him to us. And so we were able to, you know, simultaneously um, expose him. You know, we cut all of his clothes off. We put, I think, five tourniquets in total on him, put a couple bandages on him, did a full march algorithm assessment on him, rolled him, made sure there was no injuries we were missing and then we um put him onto a mega mover and moved them all in you know three minutes upon receiving them Man, and so amazing. it was amazing that is so fast yeah and, and then again as that's, the, that's as the that's situation ended um i want to talk a little bit about that that other transition now where you get the call that he surrendered he's in custody and and you have a chance to start doing what you're supposed to do right that you're an emergency physician and you're there were you able to then transition into into really just delivery of, of emergency care in the field? When uh, when our most critically injured officer went down, that was the one I was just describing. Um, we uh, evacuated him out quickly, and actually he looked sick enough, and I thought that the rest of the um, engagement was contained enough that I actually transported him to our closest level one adult trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I transported him there, dropped him off. And as we were coming back, that's when we were starting to get uh, the radio call that um, actor surrendered. So actually I arrived back on scene two, three minutes after um, he had surrendered. And so, yeah, so I, you know, entered back into the structure, kind of met up with most of my uh, Thames guys. And then actually what we did is um, when we talked as a group and uh, you know, I told everyone, okay, as the, um, as the adrenaline is calmed down, yeah, let's, transition back into medical care. You know, I checked every single, well, I didn't, I had our, my TEMS guys check every single one of the uh, SWAT operators, make sure that they didn't get shot and they just didn't feel it. You know, went back and just checked through everyone to make sure everyone was doing uh, okay. Everyone was uh, good to go. And then how long were you there treating other folks, pe- people who were, you know, members of the synagogue who'd been shot? How mm-hmm. long were you on site there before you were able to start to kind of wind down the, the operation? Uh, so, I mean, so honestly, when by the time we uh, punched into the structure, the 10 uh, killed on site, there was there was nothing we could actually uh, offer them medically. Um, the people that we evacuated all evacuated prior to actually that last uh, gunfight that we had with the shooter. And so the only medical interventions required was, you know, my one injured officer that I transported, our uh, second injured officer that just took a round to his uh, wrist, and then the shooter himself, aside from those three things, and after just evaluating the team to make sure that there was no injuries that we were missing, that was all the uh, medical care that was required on scene at that time. It's 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 such an incredible story, and I'm just sort of sitting here absorbing everything you're saying. And how do you then move to a place where you can all start to take care of each other, and yeah. start to take care of yourselves, and start to take care of the people that have been affected, but also allow them to do what they probably wanted to do, which was also to help take care of you guys and to recognize what this this. It, incredibly intense and tragic shared experience how, how does that kind of just human connection process evolve yeah and that's an excellent question especially when you're dealing with 
uh, 45 alpha males, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you, you start to get into this post-incident debrief, this post-traumatic uh, situation. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if it's unique, but one of the amazing things about the Pittsburgh, um, both the EMS side as well as the law enforcement side, is they have they have a part of their department that's something like 140 personnel strong that actually are certified for post-incident debrief. So, you know, we let just one day go by, and then we had a full team debrief every single person that was involved in the call out uh, we gathered into a room we put armed guards at the door so that nothing no, no one would be interrupted and we just talked for two hours you know we brought in um a psychiatrist psychologist we brought in therapy dogs and they just got everyone talking and then every day you know i have my uh, thames guys texting um their assigned swat operators to make sure they're doing okay you know we've, we've had pretty actually pretty impressive post uh, incident um care i think for uh for the guys, which has actually been really amazing to, to just see personally. And how much have you interacted with the community? How much have you, I don't know if it's, if it's, if this is the way it's done or not, but do you, have you met with people that were at the synagogue? Have you met with members of the Jewish community? Have you met with public leaders? Has there been kind of that same sort of dynamic of communication as a healing ritual uh, outside of the SWAT community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know one of the one of the great things about social media is that you know people can reach you if they really want to try. Um, yeah. You know, so all the other different activities that I do, from like say jujitsu, you know, um, I think 40, 50 people from my jujitsu gym after they saw the article, they uh, texted me. You know, I have a lot of good friends who are Jewish, and a couple of them actually went to that synagogue. Um, so you know, I've, I've I talked to them. Um, they, I mean, it's just an amazing outpouring from the community as far as um, the post incident um, recovery process as well. So it's actually been Unfortunately, it took a tragedy, but it's actually been kind of nice to see how well the community can come together after something like that. What's different? What would you say is the thing that when you say the communities come together, what what feels the most different now? <sighs> Great question. I, I don't know if you, I could even put a finger on it. I mean, again, does it take a tragedy really to uh, bring together a sense of brotherhood or community? Um, it feels a little bit more. It feels a little bit more intimate, but um, I can't really say for sure. Yeah. And how are you? <laughs> Always a question, right? Who heals the healer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, it was kind of wild, you know, because uh, my wife, obviously, she's been a huge um, just support structure. Um, she's kind of, you know, like, I guess, you know, watched me work through my own emotional processes. Um, and we kind of talked about it a lot. But, you know, you know, post-traumatic stress, um, how it affects the body, how it affects the brain. One of the I don't know, kind of interesting things I thought was just kind of watching myself go through it because the carnage that I saw on scene that day, again, you know, you pointed it out that I see that probably every day in the emergency department. Um, we see stuff worse than that when we put together our training medical evolutions, but it's still different when it's your community, you know, and it's people that you know and the people that you connect with. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that I was emotionally impacted from the the medical stuff that I saw. It was just... Um, you know, all the other kind of emotions that went through it. And then just like having your, your sympathetic physiology ramped up for four hours, you know, just kind of causes these little shock waves, you know, days afterwards that kind of um, take some time to deal with. So it's again, been kind of interesting to see that happen. Yeah. And have you been able to return to your normal responsibilities, both with SWAT and also your clinical responsibilities at the university of Pittsburgh? Oh yeah, yeah. We got yeah. zero downtime, so I think I was back to work the next day. <laughs> the next day, for good or bad. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. So what? What do you do? You see anything? 
coming out of this, and you know, this is not designed to be a, a, a political podcast or anything like that. But do you see, do you see a desire for things to be different in the Pittsburgh communities? And I'm not just referring to gun control. Um, I think those issues have been laid out pretty clearly. I've made my opinions pretty well known on social media. Um, do, do you think that there is a desire for anything to be different to a help prevent something like this from happening again, but also b to ensure that people know how to respond when something like this happens? Yeah, I mean, number one, you know, prevention. That's always, I think there's obviously a huge um, interest and a huge hope that things will change. I just don't know. Um, it's such a multifactorial and probably impossibly difficult problem to get to, especially with American culture, um, to help solve that problem. And I, I, I wish there were easy answers, you know, gun control. Yeah. If that works, I'm all for it. Um, psychiatric care of our underserved population. Does that help? Yeah. Um, social media, is that a problem? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I think in, <laughs> um, this, games, in this instance, yeah. certainly. Yeah. And then as far as a sense of how to train the community to respond, um, one of the things that uh, UPMC has been just at the forefront of is we've actually had the largest um, stop the bleed campaign rollout in the entire nation. So, oh, wow. you know, we have we have three different arms to the uh, stop the bleed campaign. We have a law enforcement arm, which myself and um, McNeil, the trauma surgeon that I actually referenced earlier, we're kind of the co-chairs of that. You know, we have a civilian arm and then we have a uh, a school arm. So we actually just go out for free and teach anyone who wants to learn stop the bleed techniques um, for all law enforcement. If they take a stop the bleed, you know, class, we hand out free tourniquets. So we, we definitely are trying to disseminate this information and just get it into the hands of the people that actually will be there the next time one of these things occurs because there will be a next time, unfortunately. You know? Have you had other physicians start to reach out to you to say, I understand that you do this work with SWAT. This is something that I'm interested in. Have you had residency programs or fellowships reach out and say, we have a demand. There's, there's more doctors that want to do what you're doing. Can you start to develop some curriculum for them? Uh, one or two, Yeah, <laughs> but, but not too much now. Yeah. Do you think that there will be that ongoing role or would you like um, to hopefully see, you know, hopefully see yourself get phased out in a way? I wish if I, yeah, if I could snap my fingers, I would just uh, not have a job anymore, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and I, yeah, I wish, um, I wish, uh, hate would just be, uh, um, abolished and that love could just, uh, you know, transcend all, but I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetimes, unfortunately. So yeah, my, uh, my skill set will unfortunately need be needed in the near future. But it's a noble goal and it's something that we should all think carefully about how we can get to that place because, you know, there will always be a need for physicians, but we're, when we're in a place where, we don't have to worry about people being machine gunned with an AR-15 assault rifle or in a place where we don't have to worry about someone leveraging social media to inflict harm on others. I think we're all going to mm-hmm. be much better off for it. You've been incredibly Absolutely. candid. You're obviously, you and your whole team are incredibly brave. All of us are grateful that you were able to put a stop to this at, the, at least at the time that you did. And I'm very grateful to you for coming on and being so honest about what I can only imagine was and may continue to be a challenge for you. And I obviously wish you all the best in helping just kind of navigate the next few months in a way that's healthy and, 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 and helps you to be, be, be the kind of person that you want to continue to be. So thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for telling us all about this. Mm, thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to explore the space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, 
And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. 